Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon from Hope Church Toronto North. It is our prayer that through this message, you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of God and grow in your love for God and love for others. It is God's desire for us to be members of and regularly participate in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you are not attending a local church right now, we encourage you to take that step. If you do live in the North York area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to visit us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings to discern if this is the church God is leading you to. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 24. And when you get there, if you can, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Stand for the reading of God's Word once you get it. All right, here it is. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up the mountain, and the cloud covered the, the, and the, cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This ends the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat and please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now uh, wanting to have an encounter with you through your word. 
God, what a glorious thing it is that the God who created this universe, the God who is so holy, who is so set apart as we've sung about, is the God who makes a way to commune with us. What a glorious privilege that is. And so with that being said, I pray that our hearts would be open, our ears would be open, open the eyes of our heart that we may understand the excellencies of your word. And as I speak, O God, may it be so evident that it is you speaking through me. I want your people to hear you, Lord, not me ultimately. So I ask this in your precious son's name, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. The idea of exclusivity is appealing to us. If you don't agree with me, just look at what captivates our desires and leeches off our credit cards. Year-round access to the zoo, season tickets to the raptors, and season passes to Wonderland. Being the proud member of a fraternity, Sigma, Gamma, Futurama, whatever those names are, or a member of your school student council. You've also got Sky Lounge for frequent flyers, Spotify for music lovers, and Cineclub for moviegoers. Now, I am the proud member of this club, and I must say, getting 10% off the concession stand every time I get popcorn makes a big difference. We can chat more about this if you'd like after service. We can also pray too, but, but we, we, we love the concept of exclusivity and the benefits that come alongside of it, especially how it separates us from the person who does not possess such benefits. Whatever way we want to experience such exclusivity, what's even more appealing to us is the ability to attain it. And this leads us into our text today. What we see is a reminder that, one, being exclusive isn't inherently a bad thing and technically comes for God. But two, there's an exclusivity that none of us can attain on our own. A series of benefits that cannot come out of our good deeds or bank accounts. And this, of course, is none other than being in relationship with God. More specifically, communing with Him so personally we can confidently say He is in our midst. So this morning I want to talk about the beautiful, undeserved privilege of communing with the covenant-keeping God. Communing with the covenant-keeping God. Exodus 24 shows us it is possible to commune with Yahweh, but, but it has to be, it absolutely has to be on His terms because we are sinners, unworthy of being remotely close to Him, not even in the slightest. Yet, as we sung, He makes a way. And He makes a way through covenant. A short, simple sentence to help us understand and remember what these 18 verses teach us is this. Access to God requires access through God. Access to God requires access through God. The chapter before us is classified as a transitional chapter. Exodus 24 looks back as what is referred to as the book of the covenant. Well, it also looks forward to the building of the tabernacle. So given this is a transition from one key event, the giving of laws, to another key event, instructions for building the tabernacle, 
Verses 1 to 2 of chapter 24 are a conclusion to the giving of the law. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up. Having received the laws God commanded Israel to abide by, Moses is given a different set of instructions on Mount Sinai. We see the words, come up, come near, don't come near, do come up, which gives us a pretty good idea of what to expect. God is inviting his people towards him. He's extending an invitation for communing in his presence And just so we're not confused, what God says to Moses in verses 1 to 2 has not happened yet, but it will. It will. Now, with all this talk about don't come near, come near, don't come up, do come up, how exactly does it come about? We'll observe this in our first point. Communion with God comes as the result of him sanctifying his people. Communion with God comes as the result of him sanctifying his people people. Take a look with me at verses 3 to 8. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot, out, uh, the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. You got to give credit to Brother Moses. The guy has been going up and down, up and down Mount Sinai to the point he's given P90X a run for its money. (laughs) Many of the Israelites skipped leg day. Moses wasn't one of them. He tells the people everything God told him from Exodus chapter 20, verse 22, to chapter 23, verse 33. And as the result, you get this beautiful response from the people. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We're then told of Moses literally, literally writing down what the Lord told him. This is something that the Bible makes mention of three times. And shortly following this, it appears like the poor guy takes a nap, a well-deserved one, because he wakes up bright and early, building an altar with 12 pillars that represent the tribes of Israel. It's here where young men sent by Moses carry out burnt offerings and peace offerings. But what exactly is the significance of burnt offerings and peace offerings? Well, Chris Wright summarizes it well. He says, the combination of the two types of sacrifice spoke of consecration of a cleansed people to God and of their mutual covenant commitment of loving fellowship with God and one another, a powerfully comprehensive message. From the oxen that sacrifice, Moses, you notice, initially uses half of the blood towards the altar. 
While there isn't any specific details given about why this happens, the most probable explanation was it was God's way of conveying his commitment to his covenant. He has been and always will be the divine initiator, right, powerfully describes this one. He said it was God who had made the foundational promises to Abraham and was now in the process of keeping them. God who had intervened to redeem the people from slavery in Egypt. God who had led them and fed them on the way to the mountain. God who promised to continue that guidance and provision right into that promised land. God who had revealed his person, his name, his character, and his laws. God whose voice they had heard speaking directly to them. God, whose words they were now hearing read to them by Moses, God first. It is God first. Beloved, does that not blow your mind that this God, this initiating covenant-keeping God chooses to say, I will keep my end of the bargain, as if to imply he won't. Don't miss this. God is so faithful, he's willing to have the same requirements he asks of us, asked of him. What? Which is to say, in the case he doesn't keep his end of the covenant, then he invites death to fall upon himself. But I don't just share that to blow our minds. I I want that to invoke a greater trust in our God. Dear brother, Dear sister, is this your God? Then don't doubt him. Trust him. Trust him because he's so sure of what he does. He invites death to strike him if he doesn't do what he says he will do. But spoiler alert, he always does what he says he will do. So not only are we encouraged and exhorted to trust in his character, but but in also in what he tells us to do, we see the people again in a unified voice, but this time, this time it's slightly different. After Moses reads out to them the book of the covenant, the people say, all the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient, or we will obey. If the first time was, we understand the task, the second time is, we will do what the task requires. And honestly, how can you not reflect on the Christian life after reading something like this? Should this not be our heart posture for every person that calls himself a follower of Christ? Whatever God has called me to do in his word, I am determined to do it. And not only that, but I'm determined to do it because my God is gracious to me, patient with me, and faithful to me. There is nothing that God has done on his end that should dissuade us from obeying his word. So we ought to stand distinct amongst our community and within our city. We ought to stand as a people whose love for Christ is seen, is actually seen in our lives because the Lord himself said in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Moses further reinforces the idea of his distinction as he takes the blood that went towards the altar and he goes on to sprinkle the people. 
Now this was to ordain Israel as a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. Language that 1 Peter 2.9 used to just describe believers, but you, you, yes, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But you see, in order for this to happen first, Israel needed cleansing and we are in need of cleansing too the blood is sprinkled on the people to signify the forgiveness necessary for their sins carrying on this very idea and even referencing this passage hebrews 9 verse 22 makes something abundantly clear to us without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins Some of you are here today and you are in need of forgiveness for your sins, but to this very day, you have refused to ask for it or receive it. As you can see, sin is so evil in the sight of God, it makes all who participate in it deserving of death. Sin places you in a position where you are deserving of God's righteous judgment. And that judgment will fall on you if you choose to do nothing about it. Just in case you think a good life will outweigh the bad, it won't. Just in case you think God will change his mind out of compassion come judgment day, he won't. So you can keep on feeding yourself lies and await that unfortunate day or... Or you can be sprinkled in the blood. I should be more specific. You can be washed by his blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of animals provided momentary forgiveness, but the blood of Christ grants us forgiveness for all the sins we can ever commit in this world. The author of Hebrews explains this earlier in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ, but when Christ appeared, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of his creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his blood, his own blood, the securing and eternal redemption. Jesus has made forgiveness of your sins possible through the blood he shed through the cross. Rather than waiting or living in denial, repent, believe, and receive the blood where when sinners who are plunged beneath its flood lose all their guilty stains, all of it, you lose all of your guilty stains when you are plunged beneath the blood of Christ. Oh, that is such good news. Such good news. So communion with God comes as the result of him sanctifying his people, those who are his followers and yet to be his followers, but it also comes as the result of him feasting with his people, feasting with his people. Please take a look with me at verses 9 to 11. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the 
chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Here we specifically have Moses, Aaron, his two sons, and 70 elders. Well, we're not certain why Moses had that many elders with him. Uh, but if I was in that crew, I would be absolutely thrilled. Here's why. What, what does the text say? It says, they saw the God of Israel. Like, for real? For real, for real. Yeah, they saw the God of Israel. To emphasize this visual experience, these men were privileged to be a part of, were told of what was under God's feet. Pavement of sapphire stone. Like, the very heaven for clearness. You get this sense that whatever God was treading on, it was absolutely majestic. Even if your budget for home renovations was somehow limitless, the most expensive flooring you could purchase wouldn't come close to comparing to the beauty lying beneath the feet of Yahweh. But, How does someone see God and live? Is the Bible contradicting itself? No. If we pay close attention to the text here, the area beneath God's feet is what's written for us. Therefore, what we have is a very limited yet spectacular encounter with God Almighty. You get this sense that as awe-invoking that moment was, the people were all staring at the ground like a child who has just been caught in a lie and they refuse to look at mom and dad because they are ashamed. But it's not shame. It's not shame what the people felt. It was a sense of the weight of God's glory derived from just a mere glimpse of his presence. This is why we need to be very careful when we talk about seeing God or wanting to see God. I understand for some people it's an innocent, genuine desire. As for others, it's something to boast about, like the people in Corinth who boasted about their spiritual gifts. But honestly, what I want to say to a person that is super eager to see God according to their own agenda is, do you understand the gravity of your sin? But I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Okay, then do you understand the gravity of the sin that remains in you? If you look back at the text, did you pick up on what's written in verse 11? And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Even with a limited view of Yahweh, he still had to restrain himself from striking those men down because he is just that holy. And yet we play games with God. We profane his name. We pick and choose what we obey. All the meanwhile forgetting one of the main reasons you and I are breathing the air that we breathe, eating the food that we eat, and drinking the water that we drink is because God is both holy and merciful. Merciful. He withholds from giving us what we do deserve. 
as God did this with the chief men of Israel, something even more remarkable happens. Marveling at the limited sight in front of them, they partook in a meal with Yahweh. The text succinctly captures this incredible scene by saying they beheld God and ate and drank. You know why? Because where blood is spilt and where covenant promises are made, God communes with his people. And he he celebrates with them through feasting. Years would pass after this event until another meal was celebrated. This time around, God himself took on human flesh and tabernacled with his people. Near the day of his death, the Lord Jesus Christ shared one last supper with his disciples. Luke 22, 19 to 20 record his precious words, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is the same language that is used in Exodus 24, verse 8. Through this meal, through this blood, blood that belonged to the precious Lord Jesus, blood that was shed on a cross for the punishment you and I deserve for our sin, so that we can be made right with God. This is what gave birth to the new covenant, one that is better than any of the covenants in the past. We celebrate this every time we partake in the Lord's Supper. Friends, if we call ourselves believers, people who are proud members of the new covenant, then we should partake in the Lord's Supper joyfully and meaningfully, not carelessly eating the bread and drinking the juice, but doing so with utter reverence. For it is through this meal we remember the lengths Jesus went to in order for us to commune with God, in order for us to feast in his presence. After Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders enjoyed a meal and sweet communion with Yahweh, it becomes time for Moses to go up on his own into the Lord's presence. And this brings us to our final point. Communion with God comes as the result of him instructing his people. Communion with God comes as the result of him instructing his people. Listen to verses 12 to 18. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wave there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwells on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. 
The last invitation to come up at this point in the narrative is only for Moses. We could technically say Joshua 2, and I say technically because verse 2, it says Moses alone shall come near to the Lord. So poor Joshua's wondering the whole time, and Moses, do I come up or do, do I stay here? Or what do you want me to do, right? This dreadful job of being his assistant, I suppose. And we're told God wants to give Moses the Ten Commandments written on stone. Notice, though, while Moses is gone, he leaves the responsibility of taking care of God's people to Aaron and her. Which, even though it's a small detail, it's pretty sweet that Moses cares for something like that. He could have just forgotten about it or thought, I have, I have bigger things to deal with. But in the midst of something as spectacular as going into the Lord's presence to receive a written version of the Ten Commandments, Moses gives us a glimpse into the heart of a humble leader. Good leaders always care about those whom they lead, even in the midst of the most grandiose opportunities they get. Because good leaders carry their people within their hearts, no matter where they go, no matter where they go. Moses' humility as a leader and a man is highlighted once more, and we see him reach the precipice of God's glorious presence, and he stops. The dude waits six days. Can you imagine waiting for six days after being told to come up? (laughs) But this isn't, this isn't anyone we're talking about, right? This is Yahweh. And in case we're tempted to think the slightest ill of his timing, the 6-7 language gives us an echo of the Garden of Eden. Jeffrey Newhouse gives us this eye-opening explanation. He says, The six-day period and the seventh-day calling of Moses were meant to communicate symbolically to Israel the new reality of the new creation which Yahweh was accomplishing by the Exodus events and the Mosaic Covenant. The new creation was liberated Israel. Yahweh is Israel's creator. He is also Israel's redeemer. These two uh, factors are fundamentally linked. Yahweh's six-day session atop Mount Sinai symbolizes his work of a new creation, a redeemed Israel in covenantal relationship with him. As if to say, God is going back into the garden to create a people that will not sin, but instead be a force of purification in a world tainted by sin. As a representative of the redeemed people of Yahweh, Moses is continually consecrated. That's also God's reasoning behind the six-day period. Access to God requires access through God. So this is actually his grace towards Moses. He makes him wait for six days so he can enter what's described as a devouring fire on the top of the mountain unscathed, unscathed. The people of Israel don't see what Moses sees, but they do see this immense glory of the Lord from afar. And then the text is brought to a close telling us how Moses successfully entered the cloud of God's presence, the cloud that is both mysterious and protective, terrifying and hospitable. 
We know from the next chapter and onward that within that time span, Moses is instructed. And as he communes with the creator and redeemer of Israel, he's given instructions for the building of the tabernacle. It just further goes to show the grace of God. He has always been one to leave his people without or with, sorry, complete guidance. And he has always been concerned with his people communing in his presence. It's a priority for him. Beloved, we were made to commune with God. And the beauty of this communion is that it's only going to get sweeter. The Lord's Supper, as we observed earlier in this text, encompasses all the main points of our message. In the Lord's Supper, we see how Christ seeks to set his people apart through his shed blood and better covenant. We see how Christ seeks to feast with his people in celebration of his shed blood and better covenant. And we see how Christ seeks to instruct his people in calling them to remember his shed blood and better covenant. But as we do this, we don't just look back. We look forward. Revelation 19, 6 to 9, could it say it any better? Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This day, this glorious day, communion with God will be made perfect as all of his people feast together with their covenant-making redeemer. And make no mistake about it, if you're in Christ, you're invited. If you're in Christ, you're invited. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you just remembering and recognizing, God, that you are a covenant-creating, covenant-keeping, covenant-establishing God. And Lord, what a grace that is towards us people who even in the midst of these things, we make promise to, to you, but we break them all the time, all the time. But you don't break any of your promises. You don't break any one of them. And we see that in the new covenant through Christ, Lord, that those who are cleansed, who repent and believe and receive the blood of Christ and are washed, we await a day where the communion that we experience right now is going to be infinitely better. There are no words to describe it. And God, I pray, I pray that if there's anybody who has not, who doesn't have this hope, that they would put their trust in you right now. God, would you do that right now? And for your people who are treading this world as sojourners, give us a hope. Give us this, this hope which you have already made known to us, but let it secure our hearts and encourage us as we walk through uh, the narrow road. That what lies ahead of us is spectacular. It is spectacular. And it makes whatever we go through right now worth it. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. 
For more resources or information about Hope Church, visit hopetorontonorth.com.